0: Hello and welcome to your Over the Farmgate podcast brought to you by Farmer's Guardian. I'm your host for this week, Farmer's Guardian business reporter Alex Black. Don't forget we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. Just make sure you're subscribed on your favourite platform. This week it's Great British Beef Week and later in the podcast I'll be catching up with Chris Wilkinson who heads up the Breed Promotions Committee at the Aberdeen Angus Cattle Society. But first we're talking about Exports. And with the UK's focus on becoming global Britain now that we've left the EU, food and drink exports are high up the agenda for the UK government. Promar's John Giles has worked in more than 60 countries around the globe and spoke to me to highlight some of the key opportunities and told me why farmers should be interested in exports.
1: I think there's a number of reasons, Alex, when you put them all together, but it makes it quite a compelling proposition, I think. But if, it, if you look at the, the UK food market for for as a starting point, and obviously for many farmers and food companies, it is still the, their big priority, basically. But the UK food market overall, it's a, it's a fairly mature market. Um, unless we see significant increases in population growth, we will see some increase in population growth in the UK over the next 10 years. But you know, people aren't going to eat any more food in the UK. In fact, in some cases, they might eat less food in the UK or different types of food. So there are still opportunities there. But from a structural point of view, the UK market is, is fairly mature, and sort of dem- overall demand is is fairly flat. I think by companies getting involved in export, we've seen around the world that uh, in many cases it adds a bit of additional balance to their sort of customer portfolio, uh, and that helps them make them a bit more resilient to some of the supply chain shocks we've seen in in the world you know not least with covid over the last 12 months i think also you know if you look at from a structural point of view where's the world population growing where's the world um, economies growing you know you're looking at places in you know particularly in southeast asia and china and india and these sorts of countries and there are tremendous opportunities out there i think also um you know having stepped away from the european union you know, we, we are now more involved in a sort of world agri-food economy than ever before, basically. And if you look at the, the trade deals that the UK has either done or has aspirations for, and so we're talking about places like Japan and Canada, Latin America, Asia is a prime area of interest, uh, maybe parts of the Middle East and parts of Africa, but, and also the Oceania countries. You know that maybe these export opportunities aren't for everybody but for some companies it will be the making of them and um the the condition the sort of market conditions the regulatory conditions will increasingly favor uk companies looking at export opportunities as i said maybe not for everybody you, you you've got to do your homework you've got to do your planning you've got to know exactly what you're doing otherwise it can go a bit bit pear-shaped but, you know, the, the, the overall environment, the sort of enabling environment for exports, I think, from the UK are now uh, better than ever before.
0: And if we can highlight some of those countries where, where there might be big opportunities for, for those in the food industry. I know if we start off with the UAE and the, and the Gulf region, do you want to tell me a little bit about why you think that's a, an area of opportunity?
1: Yeah, well the gulf region is uh sometimes a little bit sort of forgotten about i think in terms of uh, export opportunities for the uk but if you go to um uh, the uae for example Saudi arabia is the biggest country in in the region by a long long way with a population of sort of 35 million and that's increasing uh, and there'll be opportunities there but the, the uau uae i think is in is particularly interesting if if you visit there alex and you must get out there at some stage um you you know, the, the, the retail sector is very dominated by uk retailers so mark's and spencer's there uh, waitrose are there um tesco are there and one or two others basically and you know there is a there is a, quite a bedrock of expat uk people living there as well there's also a huge in normal terms at times there's a big uh, tourist industry there about half a million people from the uk visit the uh the uae every year you in, in a normal year um, and so, when you go into a supermarket in the UAE, you will find virtually every British food product you can there, uh, you, you can think of, will be there. Whether it's cheese or biscuits or um, soft drinks or bakery goods uh, or seafood products, you know, you know, finding UK food products in the UAE market isn't isn't the problem. Basically, the logistics to the UAE are good. There are flights uh, and boat the planes and boats going out there on a regular basis and most of the uk companies that do business there often consolidate their 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 shipments uh, here in the uk there's a number of companies who do this and then they'll, they'll be moving the product out there you know almost on a daily basis basically the, the other thing is that in the uae they are incredibly pro-british um and that sort of starts with uh, the uae royal family um you know if you think about i mean sort of cultural affinity doesn't doesn't make an export market but it It doesn't do any harm. The the other big attraction of the UAE, of course, is it's not just the UAE market, which in itself is actually quite modest. It's about 9 million people in the UAE. So that's the size of London. So you could say, well, you know, big deal. So what? One of the real attractions of the UAE, I think, Alex, is that they, you know, from from there, they then re-export to all around the rest of the Gulf. um, And they also then uh, export, in some cases, to... Um, uh, parts of the uh, East Africa and uh, other parts of Southeast Asia as well. So it's, it's a huge sort of, sort of meeting point and hub for imports and re-exports. So I think you've got to look at the UAE market, not just as the nine million people who live there, uh, but also the um, you know the, the opportunity to use UAE as a sort of safe, um, if there is a safe hub, as a, a safe reexport hub to other parts of the world, and you know not least around the rest of the Gulf.
0: And you kind of touched on it there with um, your comments about the royal family, but that British branding—I suppose not just in in the UAE and all around the world. What what mm. do people think of that British brand? What does it speak to people abroad?
1: I think I think I think British food products generally around the world. Um, we perhaps don't shout about it enough. You know, because if you look at the sort of resources that are available you know particularly to sort of people in Ireland board beer have got massive budgets to promote their uh, export products and Irish food exports have been increasing steadily um, in some cases quite rapidly over the last 10 years now is that entirely down to the work of board beer probably probably not but it's no coincidence i think i think british food products are well regarded british food provenance is well regarded what people what i found uh, as i've travelled around the world alex is that when you say to people, what do you think about, you know, what, what imagery do you have of the UK? It'll be lovely to think that people know about the sort of the rolling hills of um, Dorset and Cumbria and what have you. They, 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 they often don't. I mean, I think things like Scottish whiskey, uh, Scottish salmon, maybe Welsh beef, maybe Welsh lamb, but they resonate really. But in many cases, Britain, you know, rightly or wrongly, it means London. It means um, Union Jacks. It's all a bit stereotypical, maybe, but it means red letter boxes, Buckingham Palace, these sorts of things, Tower of London. That's what they resonate with, basically. Um, you yeah, know, The more detailed regional inventory I think they sometimes struggle with, basically. But I think on the whole, my experience is I think they think we're quite expensive, and that can be terms of your advantage because it can be sort of part of a premium product positioning in the market. But I think overall, people around the world know that, uh, the supermarkets in the UK have high quality standards and always looking for innovation uh, from their suppliers and new product ideas and new packaging formats. And they know as a result that the food products that they might want to import you know, into into India, into the UAE, into the US, you know, will, will be of a an st- you know, inherently high standard. I think the other thing that people recognise in the UK is that as well as our food products, we've got a quite a strong agri-tech sector. So the whole issue around sustainability, you know, that's not confined to the UK. That in the UAE, it's an absolute, you know, sort of top three government sort of priority because they are about 90% dependent on imports. They they feel food insecure at times. They feel that the sustainability of their food supply chains is makes them vulnerable. Um, and so I, 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 I I've said this for you know quite a long time. Yes, we can sell products to them we can sell biscuits and cheese and soft drinks and anything else we want to sell to them but we can also sell our sort of agri-tech expertise and our expertise in sustainability because all these countries will are under pressure all around the world to develop sort of sustainable supply chains some some are taking it more seriously than others
0: and with regards to to the uae what what products in particular from a farmer's perspective are in demand
1: you could sell if you put your mind to it, I believe you can sell almost anything to the UAE. The other thing, the other thing the other, one of the other attractions about the UAE market and some of the golf markets in particular, Alex, is that the, the tariff systems are pretty uniform. We're not, we're not at a tariff advantage in the UAE, but we're not against a tariff disadvantage. One of the realities is because it's such an attractive market, who else is there? Well, I have mentioned the Irish. You know the french and the dutch and the danes and the australians and the new zealanders and the americans and latin americans and um turkey turkish food companies chinese food everybody wants to be there so it's a highly competitive market if i had to pick out one or two things in particular uh dairy products i think from the uk will go well seafood is always done quite well in uh, the the uae market um but yeah other you know, biscuits confectionery you know you name it there's, there's a market for all these products out there and and there are some you know within these product areas uh, alex there are you know numbers of niches so gluten-free gluten-free bakery products vegan products meat alternative products dairy alternative products you know for, for for what is quite a small market, into uh, sort of overall terms, the, the you know the diversity of food products that you can find there is staggering.
0: If we move on to a, another country where there might be opportunities, um, if we moved on to the the US, I mean, can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that marketplace?
1: O- obvious things, you know, there's a lot of people there. Three hundred thirty million people in the US. Uh, the per capita incomes are very. Uh, the average per capita income in the US is, I think, it's fifty two thousand pounds. So it's you know there's a lot of people there. On the whole, in you know in relative terms across the rest of the world, they they are wealthy basically. I think you you know again I think I think one of the key things in the US is that people, and and sort of one or two other bigger markets around the world, you know China and India would be also very good examples. So as you had. Know, we're going to attack the US market. Okay, you're going to say well which bit because it, you know it's basically a whole series of sub markets. So you've got to work out which bit of the US that you look, look like the look of. The, the the most and, and understand why that's the case but but and, and in most most cases uk food companies would start with um the west coast california in particular um on the east coast what they call the you know the bosch wash uh boss wash corridor you know from boston down to sort of new york or washington dc and then florida is another p- place uh or part of the us that com- uk companies if you were going to start that's probably where you would begin with really that there, there have been tariff problems in in the us um the airbus tariffs have been in place over the last couple of years haven't done haven't done the uk any favors at all but it looks as if they're being on the way to being resolved and it, clearly a, a uk us free trade agreement would, would you know we're we're a bit worried aren't we in the uk about sort of soybeans coming in and Hormone-treated beef and chlorinated chicken and whatever. I think we've got to look at the the other side of the coin. Is that you know, that you know a, a free trade deal with the U.S. Would, would open up the U.S. market, you know, to a much greater extent than than we have at the moment. Um, again, lots of UK companies will export direct to the U.S., but they will also use these sort of, these companies that you know called the consolidators, who will bring together consignments of of, of a mixed range of products and, and export them, and they will take care. Of sort of local labelling that that can be a bit of a problem. There's obviously the Food and Drug Administration in the US sets down the basic criteria for labelling and um, ingredients and all these sorts of things, what you can have and what you can't have. And then on top of that, some individual states will have their own sort of state-based regulations as well. So, like all these things, you need to take a bit of time to work out what's going on, how it's how it's working, what you can do, what you can't do. Again, British food products are—you know—we're not—we're not alone in the US. You know, they, they import a lot from, particularly uh, Mexico and Canada. Why? Why wouldn't they? But UK food products again have a good reputation.
0: And I know, obviously, you mentioned there about the scale, and something I've heard before is about—you know—these more niche markets, or what we'd consider more niche markets. You know, the organic, yeah. organic cheeses, artisan cheeses. Yeah. Uh, to look at the dairy industry is one thing. That's. You know, with the size of the US, that's a substantial market for a UK producer, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, with you know, if you sort of work backwards, if there's 300 million. You know, so in UAE, nine million people. In the US, there's 330 million people. So if you've got, if you get sort of 10% of the uh uae market you've got about a million people if you get 10 percent of the u.s market you've got 30 million people basically so you, you can sort of do, do 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 the maths and work backwards really but again there are i don't i don't think the uk is ever going to and i'm not sure we want to be a sort of mass supplier to the u.s market we should be trading and marketing and promoting our sort of again our food provenance our food quality our food innovation these sorts of things and we but but looking for those niche opportunities and with the niche retailers and, and, and what have you. So sort of selling into Walmart and Costco in the States in, in the middle of America may not be that appealing. But, you know, um, there's lots of niche markets on, you know, on, on the West Coast, on the East Coast in particular, and uh, to some extent down in Florida.
0: And from one giant country to, to another, uh, if we were to take a, a look at India, what can you tell us about the opportunities there?
1: Well, wow, wow, what what can't you say about India? I mean, sort of again, you know, look at the scale of the population; it's over a billion people. So, if we can't, my view is if we can't sell something to India, then there's something seriously wrong, basically. But but again, I think you've got to look at in you know rather than saying I'm, we're going to sell to India, you've got to sort of pick the parts of India that you know there there are these um, you know mega cities, you know, places like Mumbai with sort of fifteen to twenty million people in them. You know, but but the the, the real attraction of India is the sort of the massive move into the uh, into the middle classes over the next sort of generation. So they, there's all sorts of reports being done by all sorts of people trying to predict the numbers uh, of people that will move into the middle class in India as a result of the economic development that's going on there. But um, <clears throat> you know, so there's people are suggesting there could be anywhere between sort of 300, 400 million people move into the middle class. They will they will shop for different food products. They will shop for imported food products. They will shop in supermarkets. They will shop online um and so yeah 400 million people that's that's another europe basically um having said that i think i think trying to export to india is it's not you know it's not not for the faint-hearted it's a challenging market the again the sort of regulations around import tariffs and non-tariff barriers are changeable they change quite often so you've got to keep an eye on what's going on there again working with a good importer in india would, would help you understand what's going on there but and physical distribution in the country is, you know, not not as well developed. Um, you know, road systems, rail systems, and and cool, cool cool chain is not not anywhere near as developed in India, uh, but it will be. You know, going forward, it will be. You look at the sort of size of the investments that are going on there in their food industry, um, and and again, I think sort of British expertise in, you know, the the their, the, the the overall part of the super of the retail market controlled by supermarkets in India is tiny. It's sort of one percent at the moment, but it's going to become, no, it's a bit more than that. I'm doing them a disservice. It's about three or four percent, but it will become four percent, five percent, ten percent, fifteen percent over time. And so, British food companies have been through this sort of evolution of supply chains and how they physically operate and the infrastructure you need to, to, to develop them. And I think, I think you know, one of the things that we've often said at Promar is that, you know, sort of, okay, sell them our, sell them our products by all means. You know, sell them our cheese and sell them our biscuits and, and so on and so forth. Um, but, uh, we, you know, other people have got those products. We we can sell them our, our sort of technical expertise in supply chain development.
0: And I know with... Um... Australia and, and Canada and even the US, when we talk about deals with them, people always talk about the, the cultural ties there. And obviously there's a lot of historic ties with, with India and cultural ties there. Is that an advantage for British exporters in India?
1: Um, yeah, look, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a disadvantage, that's for sure, basically. And, and again, I think we found in, in India, you know, when you ask people, you know, what, what resonates about the UK, it's, it's not sort of the, the lush green hills, unfortunately. Uh, it'd be nice if it was, but but it's London Union Jack, um, red letter boxes, this sort of thing, basically. Um, out in parts of Southeast Asia, it's I'm afraid it's David Beckham. You know, apologies <laughs> to everybody, but uh, yeah, but you yeah, know that that whole sort of cool Britannia type image. The numbers of people you see walking around in Southeast Asian cities, you know, wearing Union Jack T-shirts, one I mean, in the UK, it's all seen as almost embarrassing, isn't it, sometimes, or even sort of offensive. But in Southeast Asia, they think it's the coolest thing ever.
0: Yeah, and, and that takes us on, I suppose, nicely to Southeast Asia and, and China. Obviously, we're always talking about China and the, you know, the vast market with, with huge opportunities there. But what can you tell us about about that?
1: Yeah, well, again, look, China, war well, again, sort of, you know, there's a billion people there. If we can't sell something into China, I, I, you know, hey, I'd be absolutely amazed. And we are, you know, sort of, you yeah, know, we've, we've done quite well in China, the Chinese food market over the last sort of five years and maybe a little bit more than that, basically. But again, ferociously competitive, full of opportunity, full of, full of potential problems. I remember talking to one food company about, you know, their experience of working in China. This is a very well-known youth. And, 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 and the person I was talking to, Alex, I said, well, look, yeah, if, you, if you want to be um, a significant global player, you've got to be big in China. Um, that's just almost sort of taken as a given he said but if you sat back and thought about it he said so legal systems they're quite difficult banking systems they're quite difficult finding good people they're quite difficult keeping good people even more difficult physical distribution is difficult blah 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 blah, blah. he said he said oh, i'm not even sure why we should be there really but he said we know that if we want to be a significant global player we have to be there and we are going to sort of um, tough out all these things and and, and and those sorts of things you know banking systems legal systems good finding good people keeping good people they're, they're not they're not you know sort of the China's not the only place where that's an issue those are issues those are issues sometimes in the UK aren't they but again i think you have to think about china not as yeah you know, we're going to be big in china you think well where in china we're we going to be big i mean the sort of the places that most people start again are in the eastern seaboard cities but if you think about somewhere like shanghai with a population of 25 million people you could even say well look, even in shanghai where do we want to be into the retail sector into the food service sector i mean china is a very demanding market and it's i think you've got to sort of if you're going to look at the chinese market i'm not sure it's the place for the first time exporter to begin but maybe for our more sort of um, worldly-wise export companies in the UK, China, obviously, it's great opportunities. But you've got to understand what you're doing, and got to understand that it, you know again, success isn't achieved overnight. In, I don't think in any of these markets, success is cheap, achieved overnight. But I think in China, you've got to have a long-term, a real long-term plan and commitment. You know, the reason to export again, they've got this sort of you know huge moving through. Um, you know it used to be sort of out of the billion people in china 800 million were sort of relatively poor rural based farmers but again you know the drift to the you know to the urban centers and then the changes in the food distribution structure from that big opportunities but market access again important you've got to have good market access and i think the other thing is that we you know we can you know we Britain can go out there; and we can have a week promoting our food products, but it's no point in doing it on a one-off basis. You've got to be doing that all the time, and because after we've been in China for a week, you know who's going to be there afterwards: the Danes and the Irish and the Australians and the New Zealanders. And so we haven't got these markets to ourselves. I think we will again sort of work out what what we've got, maybe that might be a bit different from the rest of the world, and, and emphasise that.
0: And I think we've seen success in China in recent years, particularly the um, pork industry. Um, selling couple yeah. and, and a lot of the cuts that aren't popular in Britain over there. I mean, where where are the other opportunities? What what kind of products are we talking?
1: Well, again, I think I think it's sometimes quite. quite I mean, you know, the the, the the pork industry in the UK, as you said, Alex, has sort of shown shown what can be done, basically. But that that also required um, getting the right sort of market access to there. I think one thing I've learned over the years, maybe in all the stuff, uh, all the work I've been doing at ProMar. Uh, and all the assignments we've done is that actually giving someone market access is one thing then you've got to have companies who want to sort of wake up on a monday morning and saying right it's china you know um, and lots of food companies in the uk wake up on monday morning and they're thinking historically they've been thinking about their you know domestic customers and absolutely right you know why wouldn't you do that but you've got to have a bit of a change of mindset and so Saying to somebody there's a, there's, a, there's a tariff quota or a reduced tariff barrier or uh, whatever, that, that's great, but you've got to have the companies who then want to wake up on the Monday morning and say, we want to be big in China or Indonesia or the UAE or the US, and we're going to start planning for that. And to, to try and be in all these markets at the same time, you know, so sort of 80% of British food companies are SME. So there is a natural limit on resources and, um, and money uh, and people, and time. So again, you've got to pick the right markets at the right time. The other thing we see people do is sort of sometimes say, rather than pick a geographic market, we're going to follow a customer.
0: And, and we've had a bit of a whistle-stop tour around the world there, talking about global Britain, but if we, we bring it back, obviously, um, Europe's still on our doorstep. I mean, h- how important yeah. is the European market going to be, you know, going forward, even after Brexit?
1: Yeah, well, that's, 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 that's a really good question, Alex, and it's It's maybe the 64 million dollar question or maybe 64 million euro question we'll try to answer at the moment. I mean, historically, Europe has been a natural market. That's why we joined the EU. But also in 1975, we had a referendum to see whether we would stay in Europe. So I'm not sure we've ever sort of totally felt comfortable about being part of the European project. And the European project has changed as well, of course, over time as well. But, but you know, in all the work that was being done pre-Brexit, you looked at the significance of the European markets. In most cases, they're accounting for sort of 80, if not 90 percent of our exports, whether it's lamb or dairy products, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So to, to me, you know, the, the, the markets that were interesting and attractive to the UK pre-Brexit were are still attractive there are still 80 million people in germany there are still 65 million people in france you know and you know and there's still a demand for british food products basically
0: maybe you can leave us with um your, your top bits of advice for for companies that are you know looking looking at exports at the moment what what would you say to uh, a company that's exploring these opportunities
1: the first one is sort of do, do your homework Find out as much as you know. Find out as much as you can about these markets um, uh, as, as you can before you before you even think about exporting. In fact, we've done quite a lot of work at ProR with uh, companies where they've given us quite a long list of countries and say, look, these these all look interesting for some reason or another. Let's try and put them in some sort of hierarchy because it's difficult to be in all markets all at one stage, basically. So, do some homework. Do some prioritisation work find out as much about uh, the market as, as you can. There, there, is, there is quite a lot of help out there from various organisations. Um, so I would sort of take some of the help that is available to, to, to for you to do this. Um, and then I think the, the last thing I would have is a, you know, a mid to long-term plan to, to work out, you know, so sort of what's the real potential in this market? How do we get there? How do we physically get there? yeah who are our customers going to be what do they want from us who's our competition going to be and all that sort of thing basically
0: thanks to John for his insight now it is great British beef week this week and the theme is sustainability. Chris Wilkinson is a relative newcomer to the beef industry becoming involved with the Aberdeen Angus breed in 2015. Chris, do you want to tell me a little bit about the farm and why you chose that breed?
2: We've got an arable farm here in Cambridgeshire and um we've taken it over in two thousand and eleven and It had been farmed very hard, and one of the things we were quite keen to do was to regenerate the soil, and I know regenerative agriculture is a a popular term at the moment, and rightly so. So we started to grass some areas down on the farm to try to build up the organic matter, and then we decided that we were going to look at a beef enterprise. And the reason we went for Aberdeen Angus in the first place was because um, not only is it a, a great maternal cow, docile, hardy, capable of feeding on very low quality forage but also um, we were very very attracted to the fact that it's already got a strong brand image uh, in the high street and with the consumer and we felt that that was a very very important point that we would want to embrace and help to take forward. We then became involved uh, in a thing called the Great Fen Project which is a neighbouring project where 10,000 acres are going to be taken out of farming Uh, in a conventional sense, so a lot of uh, root crop farming in this area, potatoes, sugar beet, carrots, onions, that sort of thing. And it's meant to create a green lung between two national nature reserves to basically move back to how it used to be 200 years ago. So the fen, the water table in the fens are being raised, grass is being sown and it's an ideal environment for cattle grazing, certainly for suckler cows anyway. They can rear a calf on that quite successfully. We saw that as an opportunity where we can graze only at one cow per hectare, um, but uh, in a very, very environmentally friendly way. And it's, we're regarded as management tools for a conservation project in effect. So we work with people from Natural England and the Wildlife Trust to uh, operate on that site. So it's, uh, it's really exciting and it's, it's gone really, really well over the last seven years. We're, we're expanding quite rapidly at the moment and uh, things are working well.
0: And obviously with it being Great British Beef Week, the theme of it this year is about going green. Uh, and obviously beef production comes under quite a lot of stick from, from various quarters for its environmental footprint. I mean, do you want to tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that as a, as a beef producer?
2: Yes, I, I think that we do have to be careful about the environment. Of course we do. But in terms of beef production, um, beef cattle are very, very effective at turning grassland into a food for humans we are at the end of the day omnivores we're not meant to eat just vegetables or a vegetarian diet we're not designed for that things like vitamin b12 you'll only find naturally occurring in in meat it doesn't occur in in any other plants etc and cattle are just a very good way of turning in a, a vegetarian diet into meat that humans can eat on land which is actually not useful for any other type of production in many cases pieces so less uh, favored areas mountainous areas hill areas areas with thin soil and then areas like where we are where um, there's a there's a massive um, nature project where you can't actually farm it either it's going to have to be just grass with low inputs um, or zero inputs really and um, there are a lot of water in the area as well where cattle are grazing on the banks to Again, avoid having to mow them, but to keep them under control, there's useful grazing for livestock and uh, cattle play a major part in that. So we um, we graze at a low density and we're actually thinking that we're probably carbon negative in our production because we're not um, stocking at very high rates and we're not using any fertilizer at all.
0: And, and from your chase of the breed, you are obviously very um, concerned about consumer perceptions and consumer demand. Why do you think something like Great British Beef Week is so important?
2: I think it just highlights the fact that we've got um, a great product uh, in, in the UK. It's produced in an environmentally friendly way. Um, there are, Figures and statistics to back up um, the fact that most beef that's produced in the UK is um, environmentally friendly in terms of its carbon footprint. We're not importing vast quantities of cereals from overseas to feed them. A lot of cattle, and certainly native breeds and Aberdeen Angus in particular, can um, be finished correctly on um, locally grown or homegrown forage with a small amount of cereal if necessary, and. Um, therefore, the impact on the environment is is minimal, and to have a, a week of the Great British Week, which showcases what we've got to offer, is is a great great opportunity for all of us, I think. And uh, we um, we've got the Aberdeen Angus brand in the high street; it's in most of the major multiples, and they make it into part of their special ranges a lot of it's crossed with a dairy cow which is utilizing a byproduct from the dairy industry that otherwise might not have much of a value when it's crossed with an Aberdeen Angus bull as an attempt to try and get a, a more consistent product onto the shelf yeah great British beef week is is something that we're we're embracing and, and looking forward to we've already seen increased demand from our customers ahead of that week so they're, they're stocking up in anticipation of uh, of it coming along and um yeah it can always be publicized wider than it has been but um so far a lot of people are talking about it
0: thanks to chris that's it for this week make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss any new episodes until next week from us at fg thank you for listening we hope you stay safe and well and goodbye for now